Good morning, church. Please take your copy of God's Word and be turning to Luke chapter 6. This morning we find ourselves in the second pericope or paragraph section in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. And if you read along with me, remember that as I read, these are the words of God. Now it happened that on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he stood up and came forward, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and were discussing together what they might do to Jesus. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we do each week, we're going to ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we come each week in need of the nourishment that comes from your word. But Lord, it is rightly stated, I'm sure, that there are many here who have, since their birth, hardened their hearts towards your word and have refused to hear. Would you please give them light and understanding through the gospel of Jesus this morning? There are many here who have heard your word and who have responded, but because of enmity, pride, arrogance, bitterness, selfishness, are in the process of hardening themselves as followers of Jesus to your word and may even be resistant to hear your words this morning, would you please break through by the power of your spirit so that they might hear and understand and repent and obey. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, this morning, church, we hit the last of five altercations between Jesus and the religious elites. Luke has used this fight series, if you want to call it that, to exhibit the unbeatable betterness brought by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. His presence means joy in contrast to the legalistic drudgery of the Pharisees. His advent means feasting, like a blowout wedding celebration where fasting is quite out of place. He possesses the power to instantly forgive sins, and he exercises that power without fear of his opponent's opinions. He has authority over the Sabbath, and he gives bulletproof exegesis for its true meaning and heart. Jesus is calling all Israel over to the fun side. Who wouldn't come and join The prophet Zechariah once said, Thus has Yahweh of hosts declared, Judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner or the afflicted and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to give heed and turned a stubborn shoulder and dulled their ears from hearing, and they made their hearts diamond hard so that they could not hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit. Who wouldn't come? Well, we've learned in the last several weeks, the old wineskins won't come. The old garments, the hard-hearted who say the old wine tastes far better than the new that you're bringing. Those who cannot bear to hear his word will not come. And at the sound of it, they stop their ears, they grind their teeth, and they curse him in their souls. 
This morning, Jesus gives the Pharisees one more example of his new and better covenant and further expounds the true heart of the Sabbath to them. In mercy, he does these things, but they make their hearts hard. And somehow, in the presence of the creator of the universe, they say, no, we would rather remain in darkness. And in that darkness, they plot and contrive against him. Christ the King, are you likewise in a place where you are hardening your heart against this Christ, our Lord? Well, this morning, we're going to look at hardness that rejects the healer in verses 6 to 7. Then we're going to look at mercy in spite of that hardness in verses 8 to 10. And then lastly, we're going to look at the resilience of the hardness in verse 11. Taking that first section of text, the hardness that rejects the healer, we see in verses 6 and 7 some things that sound very familiar to last week. It is another Sabbath day. The Pharisees are still hanging around like a flock of vultures eyeing their prey from the treetops. In another gross infringement against the traditions of men, Jesus again goes and crosses the line one more time. And again, wouldn't you know it, he exposes the inconsistency and shamefulness of their convictions. As Yogi Berra once said, it's like deja vu all over again. That's what our text looks like this morning. But what's different in this morning's passage is the intensity of it all. Everything is ratcheted up. Now it happened that on another Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Now consider, we're not on a country road like we were last week, passing by an unnamed man's wheat field where a couple of disciples pluck some heads of grain and then some sideways volleys are exchanged in the shelter of some outdoor anonymity. Instead, this takes place in an official public religious gathering, the synagogue. And it also happens while Jesus is in the middle of his sermon. If the last confrontation was a fire started from a cigarette dropped in the brush, this week's is the meeting of a butane torch and a full gas can. Everything is far more explosive. This isn't necessarily the next Sabbath. Luke isn't interested in the immediate chronology of events here. He's arranged things topically to highlight how hard the hearts of the enemies of the gospel have become. At this point, we're at DEFCON 5, if you will. So we've got the synagogue, we've got the Sabbath, we've got Rabbi Jesus expositing the text. By the way, wouldn't you love to have heard it? Just sit under the Lord Jesus' teaching, even just this morning, while he's in the middle of his message. But then there's a problem in that synagogue service, what some people would think is a problem anyway. There's a man there with a withered hand. And of course, we'd love to know what happened to him, what caused his hand to be in the state or condition that it was in, but we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. I read through some extra biblical sources this week, make note of that, and I read one source that suggested that he was a stonemason, and he had injured himself in his work, which resulted in the loss of his entire livelihood. Now that sounds plausible, but of course it's not inspired, the good Dr. Luke doesn't say anything about it, so we can't be sure if that's truly the story or not. But we can be sure of some things. One thing we can be sure of is this is not the only text in Scripture where there's a man with a withered hand. If you'll remember back in the book of 1 Kings, Jeroboam, the king, the wicked king, of northern Israel once had his hand slapped for some inappropriate gesturing that he made towards one of God's prophets. It was in chapter 13 of 1 Kings that God sent a man to prophesy against the altar of Bethel that he had set up in Samaria. Jeroboam had set it up to rival the one true altar of God in Jerusalem. And after this nameless prophet speaks a curse 
over the altar. Jeroboam stretched out his hand to point out to his guards, there's the perpetrator. And you remember what happened. Immediately as he did, his right hand dried up. All of his digits withered like this man. Now, it's not Luke's primary point to compare this story and this miracle of Jesus directly to Jeroboam, but it's interesting when you compare Scripture with Scripture, how God's Word says things and makes sense of types and shadows. For example, the Pharisees had, like Jeroboam, set up another system of worship for the one true God. That was the tradition of men. They insisted, just like Jeroboam did, that everyone worship God on that altar instead of according to the true intention of his word, the law of God. They accused Jesus of trying to tear down this rabbinic arrangement that they had made. They don't have withered hands, but their hearts are are as baked as this man's hand and Jeroboam's as well. Here is a man in the middle of this synagogue meeting who has the same uncleanness as one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. And don't think for a minute him being a synagogue attender, perhaps a welcomed participant in the synagogue community, regularly listening to the word of God, that it would have forgotten, it would have been forgotten to him that Jeroboam had a withered hand and so did he. That there was a comparison there. That he had a correspondence to that godless tyrant. And like Jeroboam, this man obeys the word of the man of God and receives blessing, receives healing in the midst of that meeting. Since we're on the topic of biblical theology, I can't help but mention another even more famous instance in Scripture where a hand was stretched out and it drained the life from all things. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit. She reached out her hand and she ate and she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate, Genesis 3.6. How can the Pharisees miss what's going on here? How can they miss the bigger picture? Being students of the law themselves, having much of it memorized, because of Eve's choice, all humanity is in a way just like this man sitting in the synagogue service. In fact, we start out our lives withered. From the very very beginning, God commands that we keep his law, but from the very beginning of our lives, we can't. We begin our existence lacking the faculty, the heart of flesh, that loves God and loves to obey his word. Our hearts are petrified as stone from day one. Did you notice that it was the man's right hand that was withered? Luke makes note of that. The hand that was used for every clean activity in Israel. The hand that was used for making agreements and pledges, taking vows. The hand to initiate an embrace, symbolizing community and fellowship in the people of Israel. The hand synonymous for favor and all that went along with that favor was completely useless in this man. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him, that is Jesus, closely to see if he heals on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Can you imagine the stone-cold callousness of this kind of thing? They don't care about the maimed guy at all. He means nothing to them. No loving kindness or compassion to the afflicted, like I read from Zechariah just a moment ago. Instead, It's usury. The only thing they care about with this guy is whether or not Jesus is going to put himself in a trap and they can get him. In order to appreciate what's fully happening here, let me say a little bit more about the rabbinic tradition 
concerning the Sabbath. We talked about it a lot last week. I'll just mention briefly that medical work, according to the tradition of the rabbis, was not to be done on the Sabbath. There were three common exceptions. If someone's life was in jeopardy, or if a boy needed to be circumcised on the eighth day, it happened to fall on a Sabbath day, and also if a woman was giving birth to a child. Can you imagine what it would be like if childbirth was not a legitimate exception on the Sabbath day? <laughs> I know the rabbis had some pressure to put that one in there. Mama's going to lay hands on a rabbi. <laughs> Better get that one in there. The long story short, though, according to the rabbis, is if it ain't serious, it can wait a day. That was their perspective. And it's a law that matches the Pharisees' hearts, doesn't it? It's pretty cold, and it's unyielding. Notice further, the Pharisees don't just catch a glimpse of Jesus and his disciples doing something that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse 7 states that they are watching him closely. The word peritorunto implies something sinister, a scrupulousness an insidiousness. It's the same word that Luke uses in Acts chapter 9, verse 24, of the Jews of Damascus. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill Paul. They weren't watching him because he was a friend. They were watching him with hatred in their hearts. This is the same language that he uses here concerning the Lord Jesus. Like a pallet of quickcrete left out in the rain, these men are set on doing evil. There's no chance, it seems, of change. An occasion for mercy is used instead to spring a trap. Everyone knows that this man is in attendance. If Jesus tries to heal him, well, that makes Jesus a lawbreaker because he healed an unnecessary need for healing on the Sabbath. Nobody asks themselves the question, but what if he actually did perform a miracle and heal the man on the Sabbath. Well, it doesn't matter. He broke the Sabbath, therefore he's a heretic. And of course, we all laugh at the absurdity of it. It's ridiculous. But Christ the King, we should be warned this morning against hearts that harden to our Lord Jesus and to his word. And this goes for believers and unbelievers alike. Brother, sister, fellow Christian, you have the ability to harden your heart to God's word. Quoting from Psalm 95, which we've sung several weeks ago through the month of December, and the writer of Hebrews, speaking to the followers of Jesus, warned his readers, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle of our high priest and confession, Jesus, to those people... To those people, the writer of Hebrews says, quoting Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. A few chapters later, that same author says, We have a great deal to say about the priesthood of Christ, and it is difficult to explain since you've become lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of revelation. Again, you need milk, not solid food. They were lazy. They were unprofitable when it came to the word. Jesus rebuked his disciples for misunderstanding his own words, saying to them, why do you reason because you have no loaves? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Yet have you your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? From Mark chapter 8, Young's literal translation. Paul told Timothy, but the Holy Spirit explicitly and unmistakably declares that in later times some will turn away from the faith, paying attention instead to deceitful and seductive spirits and doctrines of demons, misled by the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared as with a branding iron, leaving them incapable of ethical functioning. That's 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 from the Amplified Version. Beloved, this sort of 
idea of us hardening our hearts to God should terrify us. You can get so complacent, so careless, so impassionate, so indifferent to Jesus that you're unable to hear him rightly, that you resist his commandments, that you refuse to repent and be healed. Some have even walked away from their profession of faith. Now, someone's thinking at this moment, but I thought the saints persevere. What do you mean by saying that they can walk away? As you know, Christ the King is a five-point church. We believe in Reformed theology all the way up and all the way down because the Bible teaches it. We believe that the one God justifies in Christ people for his namesake, and he will bring all of those people home to glory in Christ. All of them, that's 100%. That's what we believe. Of all that are given to Jesus, he will not lose one. But the Bible is also filled with warnings. And those warnings are used by God to urge the saints away from the darkness and into the light. To soften the hearts of those who are straying into apostasy and to bring them back to Jesus. Christ will fetch his straying sheep every single time. But many went out from us because they were not of us. Someone once said, the sun that softens the wax wax also hardens the clay. And I ask you this morning, which are you? For a church like ours, pursuing all of Christ for all of life, growing in theology and conviction, praying diligently and receiving answers to our prayers, folks being discipled and maturing and reaping financial and economic and physical blessings, what could be the cause of our hearts hardening to the Lord Jesus? Could it be pride? Surely, it was for the Pharisees. Also arrogance, surely. But I want to warn you this morning about what I believe could be an even greater danger for us. And I think the scriptures testify it is the same thing that got the Pharisees in the predicament that they're in. And that is the sin of covetousness. That's what this whole Sabbath scandal is really all about anyway, right? Jesus is popular, we're not. Jesus has people's attention, we don't. Jesus is increasing in fame, and at the same time, we, the Pharisees, are losing fame. Pontius Pilate, in the darkness of unbelief, could even see that. Matthew 27, verse 18, as he's handing Jesus over to be crucified, for he knew that because of envy, they had delivered him over. He could see it. They're just ate up with covetousness. They hate this guy because they're not him. You want to know what breeds hard-heartedness? Covetousness does. Are you unhappy when someone gets healed here at Christ the King? Surely not. No, I'm happy. Of course I'm happy. But is there a little jealousy in your heart that you've been praying for years for healing and you're not? What about when a post is made on Mattermost? A fellow member tells a story of how God did something amazing in their family, blessed them with a new job or some financial provision that they had been praying for. And your immediate reaction, is it to rejoice with them and what they got or to stew over what you haven't gotten? What about when someone learns something new and exciting from studying God's word and and it's really life-giving, and they want to share it. They want to increase and actualize all of their joy by sharing their joy with others. But you don't want to hear it because you never get stuff like that in your devotions, and you really don't have time for devotions anyway. You're so busy. And when that husband gets a new job and his wife has more money to go spend on her family... It's the same story over and over again. They have, I have not. But what does it really result in? It results with enmity with God because God won't give it to me. That's really what it boils down to. That's why the Pharisees are angry because they hate God because God won't give them what they want. And church, let me warn you, if you don't repent of that, you'll die and go to hell. 
Like the thorn-ridden soil in Jesus' parable, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else choke out the word of the gospel in your heart and it proves fruitless. If you continue in rebellion against God and unrepentance, you will prove yourself to be an unbeliever. Christ the King, if you sense a hard-heartedness, repent, come back to Jesus, repent of a covetous spirit, turn to Christ, confess to your spouse or your parents or fellow members and envy that you've been stewing over for others, which has resulted in resistance to God's truth and an acidity towards other members here. Don't run or don't walk, run to Jesus, run to him. And lost person, every week you sit here and you listen to the gospel that saves the lost. Every time your sin is put before your eyes in graciousness from the scriptures, every Sunday you also hear about the mercy of Jesus. And every Lord's Day you refuse. And every time you resist God, you're getting farther from salvation. You're hardening your heart. Tell me that's not what's happening to the Pharisees here. We started out with one minor altercation, minor to us anyway. The Pharisees got all bent out of shape because of the way that Jesus was handling the man that was paralyzed, that he was going to raise up. He forgave the sins that got him in that place in the first place. And then he healed him in evidence that he has rights to forgive the man of his sins. And they were upset about that. And then they're upset about something else. They're upset about something else. This is five times now. This is the fifth instance. And at the end of this text, they lose it. They're over it. They've had enough. They've had so much light, but chose instead to love the darkness. They're racing in the opposite direction. They've hit the accelerator pedal in a Grand Theft Auto ride to hell. And lost person... Every week you refuse Christ. Every time someone preaches Jesus to you and you come up with some excuse, you are doing the exact same. You are making your heart harder. You are pushing yourself further and your end is unreachable. Now somebody wants to say, wait just a minute, Chris. What do you mean by saying unreachable? As long as we breathe, we always have a chance to repent and believe Christ and be saved. For a long time, the church has only sought to communicate hope to the lost. But the Bible paints a fuller picture than just there's always hope. It paints a dark picture of the judgment to come. And it's not ashamed of it. And Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. We want to say things like, the arms of Jesus are always open. He's waiting to change you. He's eager and willing he stands at the door of your dead heart and knocks. He's waiting for that unbiblical, provenient grace to take effect since he's powerless to do anything against your almighty free will. But don't worry, the offer of grace is still as strong today as it ever was and it'll keep standing tomorrow and the day after and the day after you can repent. Beloved, that is not right, and it's not even almost right. And here's why. The Bible never once guarantees a future time when you will be able to repent. It never guarantees anyone future time for repentance. What does the Bible tell us? It tells us that only the present day is the day of salvation. Only today. That's it. That's all God's guaranteed us. Every time, lost person, you refuse him who is speaking to you through his word... Your heart gets a little bit harder. And tomorrow, it'll be even harder to repent and believe. Zechariah says that it can get to the point where it's diamond hard. You know, you can hit a diamond, even a small one. You can hit a diamond with a five-pound sledge and you'll dent the sledge. That's hard. How did the Pharisees get to the point where they would scheme and plot the destruction of the man who is preaching truth and healing the sick and casting out demons? How did they get to this point? 
They envied what he had and did not heed his voice. Lost person, whatever excuse you have in your mind right now, know this, Christ is more than sufficient to cover it. Stop coming up with a way out because your way out is actually you trapping yourself in your sin. There is a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs says, but its end is the way of death. Well, let's look at Jesus' mercy in spite of the hardness in verses 8 to 10. In spite of the Pharisees' rejection of our Lord, Jesus still shows everybody present that day mercy. He knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he stood, and he came forward. Here we have the second Lucan instance of Jesus reading the minds of others, showing his omniscience, his ability to read the collective room. What Jesus discerns causes him to take immediate action. The shenanigans have gone on long enough. The words of the wicked lion wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver him. Proverbs 12, verse 6. In the middle of his sermon, Jesus asks the man with the withered hand to stand up in front of everyone. And notice first how the man responds to the command of Christ. You can't miss this. It's such a small thing, but it's so powerful. Upon being singled out, he stands apparently with no hesitation. Luke doesn't tell us that he faltered at all. This would have been embarrassing. Everybody knows why he's being singled out. Look at that guy's gross hand. It's disgusting. It was a public display of his brokenness and his neediness. And him standing at the command of Jesus would have put him solidly on one side of the struggle, potentially jeopardizing his standing in the public synagogue. But even still, he came. In spite of all that was against him, he came. Fully aware of the need that he had for help, he came. You want to know what softens a hard heart? Agreeing with God about your situation. Agree with Jesus. That's what this guy had to do. Look, everybody knows that I'm screwed up. I don't like having all the eyes on me, but I'm hopeless at this point. I can't even tie up my own sandals. I need a healer. And I've heard this man can heal, and he just told me to come forward. Yes, sir, I will. Did you notice that it was the calling of Christ that enabled him to come? There was enough grace in the call of Christ to give this man the courage to admit his need and come forward to Jesus. One old British theologian said, God's commands are grants. When he orders us to repent and believe, it is only to draw from us a free acknowledgement of our impotence to perform his commands. This confession being made, what he orders, he thus enables us to do. Man's owning his weakness is the only stock for God to engraft thereon the grace of his assistance. So you have a hard heart today. But you're here and you're listening to the word of God. Get up like this man and come to Christ for help. Stop being a selfish idiot and come. His calling to you is the grant that you come forward. After this demonstration of what it takes to come to Jesus, he, Jesus, said to them, specifically to the Pharisees, but also the crowd in general, I ask you all, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill it? And the question, of course, is a penetrating one. Utilizing the same word from last week, existain, lawful, Jesus removes this man from the center of attention and he plops the Mishnah standard in the middle of the room with the maimed man. And he says to everyone who's present, let's compare these two real quick. Let's compare this rabbinic tradition to this man who's got a need today on the Sabbath. What seems right? The standard taught to you from the tradition of the rabbis? or an act of mercy for a person who is presently today in need of healing? Should good be done on the Sabbath or harm? The Pharisees are only concerned with acts of commission on the Sabbath. But Jesus shows here that they're at the risk of a sin of omission, of not doing good on the Sabbath, which is just as sinful. 
What Jesus wants to do is to save life, not a salvific term, just the deliverance of the man's body, but of course it symbolizes more. And by implication, the unholy standard of the elites is the perpetuation of the destruction of life. Now when you phrase it the way that Jesus does, the answer should be obvious. Think about this for just a minute. The Sabbath was made for man. And it was given so that he didn't have to unceasingly work day after day, his body succumbing to entropy over and over again, wasting away. But rather, it would allow him time to rest his limbs and be restored for a fervent week of service to God. When you think about it like that, an act of mercy, like the one that Jesus intends to do, is in reality perfectly in line with the heart of the Sabbath. It fulfills the Sabbath. By contrast, the position of the Pharisees, while outwardly conforming to a strict definition of rest, their unbiblical standard is diametrically opposed to God's will and purpose for the Sabbath. Think about this. God rested on the seventh day from all of his work only after he looked out over it and saw that it was very good. He saw that everything was good, not just good, I made man, I made woman, very good, now I can rest. And yet here, in this instance, the same God who created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days and then rested after it was very good is sitting here on a Sabbath day and he sees something that is not good. And yet nobody in all the congregation answers him. Nobody says a word. After looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Jesus begs the question, no one has the guts to state the obvious. Mark's gospel adds a note here that Jesus was both angry and grieved over their hardness of heart. Our Lord is not in sin for that. This is a righteous response to unbelief. Yet for the sake of mercy, he offers a proof to them that the Father does in fact side with the Son's exegesis of the Sabbath command. Jesus has the man stretch out his hand. Again, he obeys. And Jesus heals him right there in front of everybody. What a Sabbath miracle. Yes, he does have the use of his right hand back. But think about it. This guy's whole world has just opened back up again. He can work and provide for his family now. He can greet his family and countrymen without embarrassment. He can, without shame, raise his hand to Yahweh in a worship service, praising his Lord. The Sabbath now takes on a whole new meaning for this guy. He can finally rest. He can finally rest. He doesn't have to worry about where his provisions and his food and his income is going to come from anymore. God just spoke new life into his broken flesh, and behold, it was very good. We have to remember that this was a mercy not just to the man with withered hand, but also to the hard-hearted sitting in attendance. God doesn't listen to sinners, but this man's disgustingly broken hand is now as good as new. It's proof that you're wrong. Pharisees, will you repent of being wrong? embarrassingly wrong? Will you bow the knee now to truth? We know from the next verse that they don't. Their hearts just get harder. Before we get there, though, I want to say one thing more in this section. One of the ways the slanderer keeps your heart immovable, keeps you in a state where you keep hardening your heart, even tacitly in laziness, is to make you think that repentance won't really matter, won't really solve the problem. You'll always just wind back up where you started. This ditch is pretty familiar. You spend a lot of time down here. What's the point of repenting? It's going to embarrass you, and then you're going to wind back up in the same place. In his timeless Puritan work, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks, by the way, five stars, highly recommend. Go buy a copy. Thomas Brooks informs Christians that Satan often comes to you with words like, your heart is not right with God. Surely your estate is not good. You only flatter yourself to think that ever God will eternally own and embrace such a one as you. 
who complains against sin and yet you relapse into the same sin, who with tears and groans confesses your sin and yet you always fall back into it again. Beloved, if you can accept that truth, then understand this. If you give in to the devil with that slander, you are helping him to set your cardiological concrete. You're helping him to do that. Did God make a promise to you that you would never fall into the same sins again? Did he promise that? Jesus said temptations to sin are sure to come. And that includes some of the same ones that you've beaten in the past. Sure to come. Not even the warning against apostasy this morning will prevent someone from falling into temptation again. Or from sins of the past coming back to haunt you. Thomas Brooks says it even stronger than that. There is no such power of infinite virtue in the greatest horror or sorrow. The soul can be under sin like falling away, nor in the sweetest or choicest discoveries of God's grace and love to the soul as in his mercy. There is no such power as forever to fence and secure the soul from relapsing into the same sin. Now somebody's thinking, Brother Chris, is that supposed to encourage me because it's not really doing that? One of the differences between sheep and swine is that the sheep dumbly fall into the mud and get stuck. Pigs, on the other hand, live in the mud. You want to know which one you are? Tell me whether or not you're willing to get out of the mud. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Are you ready to break up the fallow ground in your soul? Are you ready for the way of escape? Then hear the command of Christ today to the man with the withered hand, the hand that is stiff and useless, just like your will to repent and obey. As a grant... It is his grant for you to come and be healed also. Stand before me and prevent that, uh, present that thing in you which is broken. That's what Jesus calls us to. Stand before me and present that thing in you that is broken. And the man did so, and it was restored. And the wife did so, bringing her resistance to her husband's rebukes to Christ. And he softened her hard heart. The father did so, laying out before God and his family his lazy attitude towards church attendance and the prayer meetings. And Christ gave him a renewed zeal to come and participate. The young woman did so as well, confessing her rivalry and jealousy towards the other girls at the church. And Jesus gave her a heart to love them instead. The single man did so, revealing an abdicating and defeatist mindset towards life. And Christ reminded him that he was chosen before the foundation of the world for good works while still a single man. And Christ encouraged him to go walk in them. Move towards Christ, beloved. When you face his truth, you're either moving towards him or you're moving away. Hear my voice. Move towards Christ. Repent. Turn to him. Embrace him. Because the only other option is a hard-heartedness that's resilient to the truth of God. And that's where we see the Pharisees in verse 11. But they themselves were filled with rage. We're discussing together what they might do to Jesus. The key word in verse 11 is the word that the LSB and Christian Standard Bible translate rage. It's a strange word in Greek, conceptually, what I mean. It's translated a variety of ways depending on which book or which translation of the Bible you have. The King James Version translates it as madness. The NIV uses the term furious. ESV says fury. Some Bibles even put a footnote at the bottom stating that the word literally means folly. The word is in Greek, anoia, which sounds like our English word annoy or annoyance. It's a compound of the negative alpha, a, and the word nous, meaning mind. So literally it means without mind or mindless. We have a colloquial way in English of communicating exactly what Luke is going for here. 
But after Jesus healed the man's hand, they themselves lost their ever-loving minds. That's what happened. They lose it. They're shouting, spitting, dog-cussing mad at Jesus. The loss of self-control is so great, they're close to an out-of-body experience at this point. Both Matthew and Mark inform us that immediately upon the miracle happening, the hypocrites turn and leave the synagogue in a tizzy. I can't believe he just did that. And they're so frustrated because they're at the same time confounded. God doesn't listen to sinners, but he just answered Jesus' request. And they can't deny it. And what can they really charge Jesus with anyway? He didn't actually do anything. He spoke to the man, and he said, stand up. The man stood up, and he said, stretch out your hand. Not a violation of the Sabbath for him to put his hand out. And the man's hand was healed. They've got nothing on him. What could they do? Well, I don't know, Caiaphas, but we're going to do something because I'm ready to kill this guy. When you think about it, though, that's chilling to have that response to the Savior of the world. We open worship this morning singing, Why do the heathen nations vainly rage? Sure feels like Psalm 2 was written about 2024. I've spoken to many of you over the last several weeks, and though nobody in our church is getting weird about it, most of us seem to be preparing for a tumultuous year. Elections, riots, martyrings, scandals, cover-ups, statues of Satan being erected in government buildings, invasion at the border, billionaires building bunkers, mass apostasy from churches in the name of the gospel. That's why we're going to let gays in our church and we're going to marry homosexuals and we're going to let the transgenders in for the gospel. No, this is not the great tribulation. This just in, the Great Tribulation happened in 70 AD. But there will always be those in the history of the world, always be those plotting their evil plots and in their sin contriving. And we know why this is, beloved. Because in perfect righteousness, God makes demands on his creation. But since the fall, his creation has withered hearts that cannot obey him and they hate him for it. I can't obey you because I'm dead in my heart and I hate you for it. So Christ will come with his rod of iron and break the rebellious pottery into pieces unless they repent. What hope can we have when it seems like the heart of the whole world is being compressed into adamant? Jesus said in John 16, take courage, I've already overcome the world. This world that is cold and unthankful and full of animosity towards its creator is also loved by the creator to such an extent that he sent his only son that anyone believing in him would have access to and fellowship with the father forever. Even today, he looks out over the remaining darkness in his lost world and says again and again in a thousand stories that we will never hear of in our lifetime, let there be light. He speaks to the valley of shriveled up and dry bones in people's hearts and says, rise, come forward. Perhaps he is saying something like that to you sitting here this morning. He's calling you out of your sin. He's calling you out of your rebellion. He's calling you to acknowledge that this Christ revealed to you in the scriptures is Lord of all. If today you hear God's voice, harden not your hearts. The way out of this is to think again about who Christ is and what he's done. That's called biblical repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Take advantage of it now. If you already know him, or rather have been known by him, but you've been nursing a layer of stone on your heart of flesh, and you hear God's voice, harden not your hearts. Repent to God, to your spouse, to your parents, whomever. Whatever excuse you have in your head right now for not repenting and coming to the Lord, it's satanic. Whatever excuse it is. God took out your heart of stone to give you a heart of flesh. He didn't intend that you turn it back into stone again. 
There are no refunds on his purchase of your person. If you feel conviction, then Jesus is telling you to stand and present what's wrong with you so that it can be healed. How blessed are those who trust without dissembling, who kiss the Son and bow in reverent fear. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that no matter how hard hearts are, we think of your servant Saul, who you converted on the Damascus road. Lord, we consider that even one as far gone as he, you can rescue. You are able to call out of darkness. But Lord, this morning, in the passage that was read over us, in Acts chapter 8, we see Simon, who comes forward professing and believing, and yet in the gall of bitterness and envy, his heart is hard, and he goes back to his old ways. And he's condemned for it, rightly so. Lord, would we repent of those misdeeds that are taking us back into the darkness, that are causing our hearts to harden to your truth? And would you give this whole church an abundance and imparting powerfully from your spirit of humility and self-sacrifice of ourselves to you and to one another, that we would not hide anything and grow our bitterness, but instead we would get it all out into the open, just like the man standing and be completely healed. Lord, you are able to do this. Your word promises us so. Even though we will have tribulation in this world, we are to take heart because you have already overcome the world. We thank you. Thank you for doing all of this through Jesus our Lord who made a way through his perfect sacrifice. It is in his name that we pray, amen.